This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 20,000 policy reports and commentaries. Today, I'm speaking with two national leaders in community corrections to hear their perspectives. My first guest is Veronica Cunningham, Executive Director of the American Probation and Parole Association, or APA, which is a membership association for professionals in the community corrections industry. Veronica has been a justice system practitioner and reentry professional for more than 30 years, including holding the top leadership position in two of the largest community corrections agencies in America the Texas Department of Criminal Justice and Parole, and the Cook County Adult Probation Department in Chicago. It's a pleasure to have you with me today, Veronica. I am glad to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Before we get started with the discussion, I'd like for you to tell our audience a little bit about APA. Absolutely. I'm happy to do that. So, you know, our organization has been around uh, roughly 45 years now. And uh, as you said, we're the Professional Membership Association for persons who work in community corrections. That's probation, parole and pretrial. And I am proud to say that the organization serves as kind of the national voice uh, for the field. And of course, we know that voice is more important now than ever before. Mm -hmm. Um, We really have to start having some crucial conversations about kind of how reform looks for community corrections. Um, There's just a lot of talk about criminal justice reform. And um, that movement is not just for policing or law enforcement. It's really for every aspect of the system. So the critical message or one of the critical messages for APPA uh, as it relates to supporting our members and really uh, being the uh, champion for their work Mm -hmm. is to basically talk about the fact that POs don't have the tools and resources they need to do the best possible job. And Mm -hmm. I know we're going to be talking about employment here. And so um, on this conversation, helping people to become successful taxpaying citizens means they need employment. So APPA is uh, uh, going to be I mean, just absolutely sounding off about uh, uh, information like that, employment, uh, support for programs and all of those types of things. Um, uh, The last thing I'll say about the organization is we really try to, I mean, our net goal is to reduce recidivism. So Mm -hmm. some of the things we do as an organization is we really try to inform our uh, uh, members by providing research information, et cetera. We try to lead them uh, in terms of being an advocate and and issues of public policy and things like that. And then we also try to develop uh, our professionals because there are a lot of small departments that really don't have uh, they don't have uh, resources, they don't have budgets to provide training and things like that that are needed for probation and parole officers. So we have uh, a, quite a, a nice portfolio. We do online training and we uh, customize training for departments. We do leadership training. We we actually hold two biannual conferences. And so um, we were scheduled to be in New York in August, but unfortunately due to COVID-19, we've had to pivot to mm-hmm. a virtual platform, and uh, it will take place over the dates of August 24th through the 28th. So individuals who are interested in attending, uh, we're happy to have them, and uh, our website actually is going to go live uh, soon. So um, uh, we're we're excited about it. 
That's great. It sounds like APA is doing some really good work um, to try to support probation and parole um, professionals and that you are taking into consideration kind of where the the current climate is um, the direction that the current climate will take you um, and adjusting your supports to meet those needs. So it's great to hear. Um, Based on the research and discussions that we had during the symposium, it is apparent that people with a criminal uh, record experience a wide range of barriers when trying to enter the workforce, which include structural, regulatory, social, and other limitations. Now, one of the challenges that has been raised by some practitioners is that probation or parole or essentially um, community supervision can potentially be a barrier to employment, too. They talk about how employers think that the conditions of probation and parole are an ongoing irritation and that they're fearful that employees will be reincarcerated due in large part to probation violations. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that notion. And and if this is an issue, what are some strategies that you could suggest that might mitigate this concern? Yeah. Great. Yeah. You know, it's it's always interesting having these types of conversations because, I mean, I would not be honest if I didn't say that employers uh, shouldn't have concerns about all of the nuances of employing a person um, who has a criminal background. Uh, Employees absolutely should consider matters related to any employee, obviously, without a background as well. Um, and And I think it's more important for people who have a background to really, really demonstrate they can do the job and they're committed to doing so. Now, from my experience, I, most employers aren't focused on the violation part of it, but rather mm-hmm. they are, they're a little bit concerned because there's a stigma attached to a formerly incarcerated person. And so they have to concern themselves and their businesses with what others think. Now, I, I believe that there are uh, about there are a couple of important ways or strategies, so to speak, that kind of minimizes an employer's concerns. I mean, the first one, of course, is that the person under supervision has to be candid about their background. And of course, Mm. uh, employees want to know that before they run a criminal record check, right? They want them to be honest when they're completing the application. And um, I also think that the employer or the employee, prospective employee, um, has to do the work, has to be dependable and skillful. And that takes that eases some of the pressure of an employer. Mm-hmm. I think the second piece is that probation and parole officers really have to do a good job of establishing and maintaining an active partnership and relationship with that employer. I, 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 that's key. I mean, POs really don't want to be like an irritation to the employer. And they Mm -hmm. also don't want to interfere with the clients uh, with their work hours and the fact that they have a job because those jobs are difficult to come by. So typically, once the employer is comfortable with the person under supervision and um, also the assigned probation or parole officer, I would say that substantially that substantially reduces the barriers because employers are really focused on the bottom line and so mm-hmm. they want um, they want to have everybody to have a positive experience um, the fact that this individual is doing a great job um, that they're they're happy that they've given him or her a second chance and that their probation officer parole officer in some cases they're referred to as counselors is engaged I think that helps a great deal 
So as we know, there's a large population of the United States who's on probation and parole. Um, Specifically, the Bureau of Justice Statistics indicate that one in every five adults in the U.S. is under community supervision. So based on what we've been talking about in terms of barriers, you know, understanding the importance of overcoming barriers to employment is really um, critical. So what role, if any, do you think that probation or parole departments should play in helping the individuals under their purview to secure employment? And how do you think they're doing at meeting this challenge? Yeah, that's I love that question. So, you know, probation and parole officers must assist people under their purview to find employment. Um, and, 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 and that's not easy. That's, you know, a lot easier said than done. Uh, I think on a high level, It really requires these departments, um, as well as uh, an organization like APPA, to really advocate for changes. And uh, oftentimes, it's changes related to legislation. So, you know, this whole ban the box piece has been kind of uh, on the surface for for probably the last 10, 15, or 20 years now. Those Mm -hmm. are the types of things we have to support. Um, It's also imperative that department heads really do the work with respect to appealing to their government or their funding entities for better funding for probation and parole. I mean, I hear that all the time. I saw it when I was uh, an active practitioner, and I I have those conversations with people nowadays. Uh, I'll tell you that since COVID-19 happened, for example, um, I learned that probation fees, for example, are being used to a large degree in many departments across this country to uh, manage the salaries of probation and parole officers. Now, back in the day when I was an officer, of course, there were always court costs, there was restitution, but probation uh, supervision fees kind of didn't start until much later. And at that time, the focus was to use those fees to supplement the funding that was already coming from the government entities. But now I'm hearing that funding is funding is being used or those dollars are being used to actually fund people's jobs, which I mm-hmm. think is horrible and has to stop quick, mm-hmm. fast and in a hurry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just uh, and so what what department heads need to do is they're going to have to really step up and go to their lawmakers and say, we need adequate funding. Um, that whole like. Uh, business as usual, it's a thing of the past. I remember even myself, to be quite candid, going to appropriations hearings and the um, the, 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 the public uh, public officials would say, well, your budget was X amount of dollars last year. This year, we're going to keep it the same. There was never an opportunity to really talk about why we needed more or how we could shift uh, the budget from one place to the other. So I think that's just really important that we have to start doing that as leaders in this industry. Because the bottom line is employment is necessary. It's, I mean, for every able adult, um, so to speak, they need employment. Um, mm-hmm. They also need things like treatment programs and the list goes on. Uh, I would say that some departments are doing a really, really good job at it. And some need some help and support. Uh, when I worked in Chicago, the Cook County Probation Department, we had individuals who were still technically probation officers, but they had the title of resource officers. And their sole purpose was to really help people on probation to to identify uh, employment opportunities and to go and seek relationships and partnerships with employers mm-hmm. who were willing to hire people with criminal records. 
Um, I also know that there are some agencies who do really do a really great job. They have like computer labs in mm-hmm. their departments where people can go and do job searches because they don't have computers at home to uh, to learn to write a, a proper resume. And then also I know that there are a lot of departments that have great partnerships with some of the not-for-profits that have uh, job services. But there are a lot of departments that really could do a much better job. Um, I, I have I have to admit that when I was an officer, I didn't always do the right thing, meaning, and I'm not mm-hmm. suggesting anybody else do this, <laughs> but I mean, if I had a client who I knew he was really trying to get his life on track, he was working hard to find an empl- a job, I would often collect money to give him bus tokens so that he could go to a job interview. Mm-hmm. Or I would, if he had secured a job, I would give him bus tokens so he had money before he got his first paycheck. Yeah. And uh, again, I just, I just know that we all have to do a better job to help people when they're trying to help themselves. I mean, because it's, it's tough. It's tough for a person who doesn't have a criminal record. So it's certainly going to be tough for individuals who, who have one. And so, yeah, I would say in terms of how we're doing, I would probably give us maybe like a C. I think mm. we could so much better as an industry. I think that needs to be one of the critical focuses because, again, people need employment. Yeah, thank you for your candid response and, and for o- offering a grade. That helps us <laughs> to kind of <laughs> have a better understanding of kind of where there needs to be some improvement as well. So thanks for that. Um, there's there's also been a debate about the appropriate approach to placing folks with a criminal record into jobs. On the one hand, some suggest that folks should be placed in what's commonly referred to as offender-friendly jobs like construction work or truck driving. But then others advocate for placing them in jobs that align with their career interests. Research tends to support the former, that you got to get them attached to a job and then you build from that. But I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on this issue. Oh, that's interesting. I remember having this conversation with uh, people recently, and I say that in a perfect world, uh, you know, it would be wonderful to place individuals in jobs that align with their career interests. Mm -hmm. However, in this real world, um, as I said earlier, it's necessary for every able-bodied adult to have a job. And most people with or without a criminal record, they, they, they have to take care of their basic needs and, and, and those of their family members. So they don't really have the luxury of saying, I'll wait until I find that job that's just perfect for me based on this interest that I have in whatever it might be, being a chef or, or whatever the scenario might be. Uh, I always encourage uh, my clients uh, to find a job, period. Mm-hmm. And then, because um, that's challenging all in, all its, in itself, then once they have employment, you start seeking uh, an, an opportunity for something that's, that's, that's a good fit for you based on your career interests. Uh, sometimes that might mean you have to get some additional education, you got to pick up some new skills along the way, et cetera, et cetera. But I say first things first. And the thing that we always have to keep in mind that most individuals on probation and parole have a condition of employment set forth by the sentencing judge or the parole board. So, mm-hmm. again, find a job. And it's just like anybody without a criminal record. My parents would always say when I says, oh, I'm not sure if I want to keep this job. OK, you keep that job until you find that other job that's better. Don't quit. Um, you know, keep the job and then you get something better. And I think that's what um, what's important. 
So we've spent some time talking about specifically how to help um, job seekers. Now I'd like to ask you about the role that probation and parole departments might have in engaging employers or reentry programs that try to prepare people with a criminal record for jobs. Um, how is it that um, those departments could work with these uh critical stakeholders to help them to improve employment outcomes for people with a criminal record? So, interestingly enough, one of the last things I did when I uh, served as a director of the uh, parole division for the state of Texas is we started these kind of uh, open houses. And we sometimes the open house was directed toward the media, kind of a media day. Sometimes it was directed toward prospective employers. It was an opportunity to bring those individuals in to really learn about what we do in the community supervision space. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not sure if the uh, department uh, I was in still does that, but I just thought that was so, so valuable because you get an opportunity to speak to these individuals one-on-one and share with them kind of what we do as a department and what we're doing to try to help these individuals get from point A to point B. Now, you guys are great that you understand the importance of this subject, but there are so many entities, both public and private, that really don't. And as I said earlier, as an adult, employment is the very essence of being. And no matter who you are or your past mistakes, you deserve a chance to become a productive taxpaying member of our society. So it's, it's essentially impossible to do that without a job. So I think departments uh, really have to engage employers. They have to get involved and understand what resources there are in their communities, what reentry programs are out there and other things to kind of help improve the uh, opportunities for individuals to be gainfully employed. And, and, and you know, there's a move afoot, I think, to do that. I think POs, um, they get it. Most POs get it. They understand that employment equals livelihood. Mm-hmm. And while it's not easy, I think that they're working uh, in many respects to do so, as I mentioned, the resource officers in Chicago before. Um, so I, I think we're moving in that direction, but I think it's going to have to be it's going to take a lot of time and it's going to have it's going to take creativity on the part of probation and parole departments to really get to know some of these employers, both small and large, and invite them in so they'll understand what we're trying to accomplish because we're all in this together and the net net is to reduce recidivism and to enhance public safety. So yeah, we've got a partner to do that. I have one final question and, and um, you know, with, given the current climate, you mentioned earlier that uh, there's a move afoot to reform the criminal justice um, uh, landscape. So I'm wondering if you can share any take home messages or recommendations for job seekers, employers, administrators, uh, policymakers. What, what's your advice? Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Interestingly enough, I, I think if I, if if I were speaking to a job seeker right now, a person with a criminal record in particular, I would say be patient. Uh, uh, it, jobs aren't, uh, it's not just like uh, completing an application and somebody says you start today. Uh, that's, it's, it's, it's not that easy. So be patient uh, and be mm-hmm. persistent and also be prepared. So, and uh, that that's critical. Um, go into that position that you're apply, applying for, um, having done your homework, understanding mm-hmm. the nature of the work, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, being committed to doing that. 
and keep in mind why you're doing it, not just because you're on probation or parole, but because of you, uh, the, the need for you to be an adult and take care of yourself and your family and just to do all of those things that every other working person does. So that, that would be important to keep that top of mind. Um, to an employer, I would say open your minds to finding mm-hmm. not just the just feeling like you're doing good because you're giving someone a second chance if you hire a person with a criminal record, but you're wanting to find the best talent for your business. And there are some talented people out there, even people with criminal records. So clearly, obviously, we understand that there's some limitations with hiring persons with criminal records. It depends on what their offense was and how that relates to the product or service that business offers. But by and large, uh, employees need employers need to understand that there are individuals who have made mistakes in their lives, but who um, they're no less talented than uh, people who have never gone to prison, if you will, or gone to jail. And then to the practitioners, I would say it is so critical that we spend a substantial amount of time on this subject of working with people with criminal records or helping people with criminal records find employment. Mm-hmm. I think we have to keep encouraging them. Um, they're they're having difficulties in their lives. They've they they're on in many respects trying to catch up. You know, for the time they've not been able to to work and be with their families, et cetera, et cetera. I was I was thinking about uh, this whole employment issue the other day when I saw a CNN piece where the young man who was shot, uh, I guess, in Atlanta last week or a week before last, uh, mm-hmm. Ray Shard Brooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had an interview um, sometime prior, obviously prior to his uh, his his uh, uh, his death, and uh, he was talking about how difficult it was when he re- was released from prison, and that he wanted to do the right thing, but everywhere he went and he completed an application, it, 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 the door kept getting shut in his face. That application always asked him, "Do you have a criminal record? Have you been convicted of a felony?" And he was just talking about being a, I think he said he was a carpenter. And he said, I'm a really, really good carpenter. He just needs an opportunity. So I think armed with the information about the, the clients we serve, those practitioners really need to get out and help engage employers to kind of present the best case scenario for, for their clients. Because when it's all said and done, as I mentioned earlier, it, the, the end goal is public safety. And uh, we really want to help these individuals to um to get back on track in their lives. I'm glad that you um, kind of ended on that note, uh, specifically related to Richard Brooks and and the issue that he faced with trying to secure jobs. I mean, this is what we hear over and over again, um, that, you know, you fill out applications and you've got to check that box and that can be a barrier. So I'm going to ask a follow-up question because it's a policy issue. So what's your advice for policymakers to help remove that as a barrier to the Richard Brooks and others? I think the good news is I think we're uh, we are on that trajectory to do that. So I know that in most jurisdictions, the whole ban the box piece, for example, in Chicago, um, I remember when ban the box was introduced, then it was just this big issue around this gentleman who had worked in the city of Chicago as I want to say like an engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, this man was doing well. He'd worked for the city for about 20 years. His Everything was just going perfect. All of his annual reviews reflected that he was a stellar employee, et cetera, et cetera. So then there was this change in administration. So a new mayor came in and that mm-hmm. mayor decided to um, do a record check on everyone who had worked in the in the city. And mm-hmm. uh, maybe not every single one, but certainly in certain capacities and certain departments. 
They did a record check on this guy, ran a record check, and came to find that he had a, a criminal record from some time like 25 years. Do you know they fired him? Oh, my gosh. They fired him. So the good news is um, somehow the media got a hold to the story, and um, one of the very uh, assertive media persons who was really on it, um, mm-hmm. she, she did an op-ed and uh, or had some other people, some people did an op-ed with her, through her. And when it was all said and done, he was able to get his job back. So I think in terms of, you know, we just need to be realistic about the policy. So then, of course, the city took that off of their job application. But if you're going to take it off of your job application, but you're still going to find other ways around mm-hmm. supporting individuals with a criminal record, that just doesn't work. So I think those of us who are in, in a position to kind of keep that message front and center for uh, policymakers and lawmakers, we absolutely have to do that. But those are the types of examples. So that's the type of example, the ban the box, that it's a great, great thing. But I think we need to keep in mind that there's always something a person can do if they really don't want to hire you because you have a criminal record. So we have to figure out a way around that. Thanks so much for joining me today, Veronica. It has been a great joy speaking with you about this topic. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. My next guest is Dr. Nicole Jarrett. Dr. Jarrett directs the Corrections and Reentry Division at the Council of State Government Justice Center, where she leads the center's program and policy efforts to promote the successful reentry of people leaving jail and prisons and improve practices in institutional and community corrections. In her former role as the director of the National Reentry Resource Center, she oversaw technical assistance for hundreds of Second Chance Act grantees. It's a pleasure to have you with me today, Nicole. Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, before we get into the discussion, Nicole, can you tell our audience a little bit about the Council of State Government's Justice Center and your role with the organization? Yes, sure. Um, The Council of State Government's Justice Center is a Nonprofit, nonpartisan organization serving state officials in all three branches of government. And we assist policymakers and practitioners in making criminal justice uh, policy. And so that work has involved uh, the training and technical assistance to state, local um, agencies, as well as organizations and different nonprofits. Um, a good portion of that work has also been around uh, assisting Second Chance Act grantees implement their local reentry initiatives. And we've also helped develop resources to inform the field. The title of our closing plenary, the session that you um, closed the symposium with, was How Can Policymakers, Practitioners, Government Officials, and Employers Take the Next Step to Improve Career Prospects for People with a Criminal Record? And one of the major barriers to employment that you identified relates to policies or regulations. And you said that there were more than 40,000 provisions of state and federal law that limit opportunities for people with criminal convictions. So can you provide some examples of these structural and regulatory barriers and tell us what you think needs to be done to help mitigate these challenges? So, yeah, that's a lot of collateral consequences. And all of that is cataloged in the National Inventory of Collateral Consequences of Conviction, which is a publicly available online database. And uh, 
it has the statutory and regulatory provisions from all 50 states and the federal system. And they cover consequences that affect access to employment, housing, education, public benefits, and other benefits and opportunities. Um, over 70% of those regulatory barriers are employment-related consequences. And they affect a broad variety of jobs from accounting to being a, a licensed uh, counselor. And, you know, one way that they serve as a barrier is that they may limit uh, who an employer can hire. And so, uh, for example, in Kentucky, there's a law, you know, just clearly stating that uh, in regards to a city firefighter, that no person convicted of a felony is eligible for appointment. So that's very, you know, clear cut. Another way that we see uh, employment-related uh, consequences is in the limitations put on occupational and professional licensing. And the role of licensed occupations is very important and it's been increasing in importance. In the 1950s, a licensed occupation represented just 5% of the U.S. workforce. Now it's nearly 30%. These regulatory barriers um, can also be indirect. You know, so providing a strong disincentive for an employer to make a hire. And so uh, a state agency may revoke or suspend a business license if they hire an employee who has a certain record. And so that is another area in which we see these types of um, barriers impact employment. In many cases, these barriers may be unnecessary or just overbroad in their restrictions. And so there's been a lot of work in recent years to try to mitigate some of these consequences. We're currently finalizing a national report summarizing uh, the collateral consequences around employment that provides a really good overview of of the different types of consequences and whether they're mandatory or discretionary, direct or indirect, different things that we could be doing to mitigate uh, the impact of collateral consequences is to limit the mandatory con collateral consequences. And so, you know, I think we need to ask ourselves whether or not we need all of these regulations. Um, and so, I, you know, if we look at other countries, they're not as uh, intensive or pervasive as they are here. Um, there may be situations in which we do say that it is necessary. Um, but I think a key pathway moving forward is to have um, regulations be more individualized so such that there's consideration of applicants and uh, their criminal history. Thinking about ways of how we can be more transparent in when there are discretionary consequences uh, and making sure that uh, we're not giving too broad uh, authority to states and that when there is a denial, 
um, the process is just very clear and transparent and that it's being applied in a consistent way. You know, jurisdictions taking a look at and reevaluating ambiguous language uh, and the categories within triggering offenses. And so we're seeing states across the country beginning to increasingly do that. Um, there's still a lot more to be done. There's uh, over 40,000 <laughs> regulations of barriers, but um, it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. So what's being done to address these policy barriers? Well, you know, in terms of uh, we are seeing states make uh, some move towards providing a lot more clarity around uh, some of these uh, in terms of some of these uh, barriers. Um, you know, I think one of the things that is, is worth at least taking a, a step back is just asking ourselves is whether or not we need all of these consequences, right? So if you look at ourselves compared to other countries, our, our collateral consequences are, are definitely a lot more severe. And, uh, and so one of the things is to look to see what's actually needed. Is something there to serve as an additional punishment? Is, a, is it a public safety concern? And getting really clear about that. And some jurisdictions and states have really looked at, you know, removing mandatory um, consequences that uh, don't necess- that are not necessarily tied to a um, specific type of offense. That jurisdictions are uh, moving increasingly towards limiting um, limiting the offenses that trigger a consequence, mm. those that indicate an increased risk to public safety for that particular job. And that actually is, a, you know, a really good move. Um, when I talked earlier about ambiguity, uh, you know, there are things uh, in, 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 in different uh, regulatory language around crimes of moral turpitude and, uh, you know, really try and, you know, offenses indicating a lack of moral character. Uh, you know, we saw Kansas uh, recently uh, just, you know, making a provision around general licensing law that in no case shall nonspecific terms such as moral turpitude or good character be used to disqualify an individual's application uh, for licensure. And so really just getting a lot more clear is 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 um, a positive uh, step moving forward. Uh, another piece um, is looking at the duration in which these consequences remain in effect. Mm-hmm. And so we know that, um, you know, as, as time from conviction um, moves along, the risk of recidivating or returning and committing another con- crime actually goes down. But um, only like 17% of the employment-related consequences has any kind of explicit time limit to it. And so you're seeing um, more states uh, being interested in uh, if there are consequences, you know, limiting the time back. Because right now, in many cases, you can, it could be 20 years, 30 years, and that 
that conviction, how old it is, however old it is, would still stand. So seeing, you know, more positive uh, direction in, in that way is helpful. Switching gears a little bit, still thinking about barriers, but, you know, currently uh, America, the world is waking up and being more attentive to issues of um, racial injustice and systemic um, and institutional racism. So during the symposium, you raised uh, uh, the importance of attending to these social barriers, such as racial or ethnic ethnic or gender biases. Um, How do you think that these biases manifest themselves um, in a way that impacts uh, employment outcomes for people with a criminal record? And what are some of the strategies that you think need to be in place to address these types of barriers? Yeah, this is um, such a, I mean, has always been a serious issue. I'm I'm hoping that what's happening today will just continue to shed a light as to uh, the intersectionality of what we're seeing in different systems. So when we look at employment, we know from the data that there are racial disparities uh, around uh, unemployment and and wage, and so with with particularly black men lagging um, much further behind than other racial uh, racial race gender groups. We're thinking about bias and racism in uh, in a structural way. Um, the thing that is uh, interesting is to think about you know the criminal justice system and, you know, the, the longstanding racial disparities within the criminal justice system and what that means in terms of burdens of collateral consequences is being uh, more heavily shouldered by uh, people of color. And then we also know that uh, when we are looking at the labor market, the stigma of having a criminal record in the labor market is more pronounced for people of color as well. And so, and, and, and really specifically if we're looking at gender and race, black men uh, lagging behind around unemployment as well as wages. And so um, I think it creates, I hope, I'm hoping that this moment that we're, uh, where the conversation around criminal justice reform uh, bias and race uh, really brings attention to what could be happening, what we what we could be doing better, and so part of that is looking at um, why has why do we have these disparities in employment, um, and you know we do have equal um, opportunity uh, laws, and some of what needs to happen is greater enforcement of that. And so, you know, and understanding and trying to figure out what that would actually look like and what that means, Um, you know, organizations and employers doing more to fight bias uh, in in hiring, looking at uh, some of the barriers that employers um, have in their mind that serves as um, their hesitation and maybe hiring somebody with a criminal record, you know, um, 
that somehow it's more risky, like really confronting those attitudes uh, that, you know, by including the voices of people who have successfully uh, hired people with criminal records and that they are motivated to stay at stay on the job and that they do perform well, uh, that they see higher retention rates, you know, really speaking the language of employers. I mean, they, those are the things that they really care about. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and encouraging employers to uh, hire people with criminal records as a way to foster a culture that embraces uh, diversity. And so, you know, all of those things, I think, I think there is a uh, let's make sure that uh, people are following the law and then also making sure that we are speaking the language of employers and then also looking at um, what could be done to help change the culture um, within uh, different workplaces. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there's just so much that we could be doing to just fight stigma and, uh and in the language that we use, making sure that it's you know more person-centered. SHRM, uh, an organization focused on um, human resources professionals, you know they have uh, had a campaign on called "Getting Talent Back to Work," you know to encourage uh, to to talk about hiring people with criminal records. And I think the thing that was so great about the, um, about the campaign is just the language that they use, getting talent back to work, you know, sometimes uh, really realizing that there's ways that we sometimes frame things that really can be more of a hindrance. You know, we've actually also done a lot of work bringing employers together so they can talk to one another, but then also talk to policymakers and, uh, and one of the things that's that we should keep in mind is that what we talked about earlier in terms of regulations and how ambiguous it is, I mean, that actually is often a, a great hindrance and a frustration to a lot of employers who may want to uh, hire someone with criminal records. So um, where we can facilitate those types of conversations and facilitate policies that remove barriers that allow employers to make the hires and retain people is will be critical. Um, the other piece is really trying to get employers, get their skin in the game when it comes to the reentry population and getting involved in training and workforce development even prior to release and really having some honest conversations about what their workforce needs are uh, with uh, corrections professionals and working with reentry professionals so they can get the workforce that they need. And so I think the, I think the opportunity is, um, is great. I think for women in particular, what we don't talk about often is that uh, sometimes they don't have the same level of access to training opportunities uh, pre-release. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, making sure that when you are engaging employers around opportunities to, uh, to help with training and recruitment, that it includes the female population as well. Um, and I think long, long, long gone are the days of, you know, these are female jobs, male jobs, but, uh, really having a diversity of different types of opportunities is, is, is key. 
and um, creating a pathway forward uh, for career development. Uh, one of the things I didn't mention earlier was that so many of the jobs that are that people seek right after they leave are really in either retail or in um, or in the food industry. And um, people ha- come with a wide variety of interests and skills. And the more that we're able to be mindful of that and train people and create opportunities and connect into those opportunities, you're going to see people be more and more successful in their employment. I think we've covered kind of uh, what policymakers need to do to address the um, regulatory barriers. And we've talked about how employers or how you can work with employers to address these more social barriers. Let's pivot a bit and and talk about uh, what reentry programs need to be attending to. Um, during the symposium, you talked about some important considerations for reentry programs, such as you know collecting data on program um, effectiveness and sustaining program funding and collaborating with prospective employers and key stakeholders. You've got an extensive experience working with jurisdictions to implement re-entry initiatives. How do you think re-entry programs um, should attend to these really important program-specific issues? And do you have any examples of best practices? Yes. Uh, You know, one of the biggest challenges that we still face is trying to figure out what works, right? <laughs> so uh, in terms of really good reentry, we know employment works. We know, you know, having people get a job is, is, is really important for people to do well um, when they're back in the community. But the right mix of training and different types of employment opportunities, um, what one of the things that would just be helpful to move the field forward and really be supportive of uh, all of those um, reentry practitioners um, and and uh, groups that are connecting people to different types of employment is more research and evaluations. And you know, I think the first step to that, though, especially working with so many organizations that got a grant, uh, is to make sure that they're implementing a program the way they need to implement it. You know, we call it getting evaluation ready, Um, you know, doing an evaluation before you got the program operating the way you need it to operate um, is not particularly helpful. But, uh, But going in with the idea of uh, we're going to really set this program up and study it and take this information and tweak this program and strongly encourage uh, to then sh- spread the word. You know, I, it's tempting to keep the data to yourself, but uh, we really need to move the field forward. Um, I do think that this is... Um, you know, I hate to say it, but I think this is also connected to the conversation around stigma. You know, there's so many examples of, uh, you know, I talk to programs and they say that, you know, this is working, but no one else knows the story. 
And so it, it stays with the 125 people that they're working with. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm really excited about in the future is seeing us really building our knowledge base and how to best support this population because they do have a diverse set of needs. Yeah. And so uh, some good research will help with that. And, and, and rarely is the story yes or no. It's the how, in what case, for whom. And, uh, and that's, that's really important to tell. And not only just on a national landscape, but even within your jurisdiction, being able to go back to the employers, letting them know how, you know, what you're seeing from your program, how well people are doing, you know, all of, we are still very much in a kind of public education campaign when it comes to people being connected. So, you know, spend some time thinking about messaging, getting data points that are helpful to not only inform your program, but to communicate a message about what the experiences are for people being connected to employment and and sustained employment. That's great, Nicole. Um, I have one final question. Do you have any additional practical recommendations or takeaway messages for job seekers, employers, or practitioners who are working hard to improve employment outcomes for individuals with a criminal record? Yeah, it would be a word of encouragement. You know, with sky uh, rocketing uh, unemployment rates, um, the temptation could be to retrench back to where we were a decade ago and let and have people with criminal records fall to the bottom of, um, and when low unemployment rates were, um, really, really low, uh, it was easier to make the case, uh, to employers like, Hey, you need somebody, here goes somebody. Um, for us to, as we're thinking about recovery and economic recovery, that it would really be inclusive of everyone. Uh, let's not re- relearn the lessons, just continue with what we know and that it's, it is hard, but it is worth it. And that we need to be thinking about this population as a whole person, you know, their individual strengths, uh, and, uh, what their individual needs are understanding that there are barriers outside of them, whether they're regulatory, whether it's in their neighborhoods, whether it's bias coming from employers, whether it's the school system that they got their original education from. So it does, it does take more, but the long-term investment in the people, families, and communities are worth it. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure, as always, um, catching up with you and talking about this really important topic. We really appreciate your contribution. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. That brings us to the end of this symposium recap. If you haven't heard them yet, you may be interested in the three previous episodes in this series summarizing the career prospects for people with criminal records symposium. You can find those in the events at RAND podcast feed. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. To learn more about RAND's research on jobs and criminal records, 
visit www.ran.org slash criminal records.